Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. We're, we're in the book of Acts. Fran last week talked about Acts 3. I will have to refer to it because I see there, there's a flow. Uh, Acts covers a period that's over 30 years. But the first few chapters, actually even the first six or eight, um, cover a very short period of time. The first six happen within two years. First eight depends on what, what different people think, but less than four. <clears throat> so Acts 1 and 2, it's the ascension immediately after it. Then Acts 3, 4, and 5, especially 3 and 4, still shortly after the ascension. And I, I want to talk about this in the sense that of, uh, I want to emphasize God's very public display of power. The very public display he decides. There's, there's so much that is not hidden. He is making a big deal out of his presence with power. And then you see people's reactions to it. And you see the way people react to that display of power. And then you do see the disciples' reaction to people's reaction to that display of power. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about. <clears throat> a takeaway with this is because as you look in Acts, it gives us a real practical view of what God is all about. Um, uh, much to sometimes to displeasure my wife, I like, I like reading a lot of history. So uh, <clears throat> there's a, a newer book that came out about 700 years of Rome's history. And we listened to it on our vacation when we were in the car. Well, actually, I listened to it. My <laughs> wife endured it. <clears throat> But the whole thing is at the time of Acts, there's a lot of political intrigue going on. Lots of weird things with politics. There's things going on all throughout the world. And in the book of Acts, God doesn't choose to record any of that. He wants to record what he and his Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And the whole emphasis on that is just not, it's just not about the world's kingdom. It's about his kingdom. And sometimes we forget that. We get distracted and we forget that we're not in the world's kingdom. So it's what is God is about? What are we to be about? And the whole idea of this awesome adventure with God, which includes trouble and joy. Like it's it's really clear. There's a lot of trouble for, there's an awesome adventurous walk with the disciples and with what the Holy Spirit's doing, but there's a lot of trouble. But there's joy in the trouble. Uh, the other option is to be distracted and intimidated by what the world's doing, and you still have trouble. But instead of trouble with joy, you have trouble with complaints. Either way, you get trouble, so I think it'd be best to offer the other trouble. <clears throat> Sorry for the allergies. So, just a quick summary of what, what Frank covered last week. You had a very public healing, heal, healing of a lame person. A man who was lame from birth. Basically, you have the story of the disciples coming up. They're carrying this man in a stretcher to the temple, to a very public place where he's carried to a lot, so he can beg from people. So it's purposely in a very crowded spot. And that's where you have the whole famous line where the disciples see him and they say, silver and gold we don't have, but I'll tell you what I am going to give you. In the, in the name of Jesus, and he actually it's a command term, in the name of Jesus I command you get up and you walk. And it's a powerful thing. Crazy, crazy public thing. And Peter, because it draws a big crowd, because this guy's been lame from birth, it's very public, 
And Peter's message to the Israelites is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is glorifying Jesus. He gets right to the point. Jesus, the author of the life, the author of life that we have seen raised from the dead, he points out, you killed him. But they'll say, you killed him out of ignorance, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying his Messiah would suffer. So he's saying, this very Messiah you thought you were done with, God has glorified him, God has raised him from the dead, and you know what? This is all God's plan. You even acted in ignorance of what you thought was going on, and you didn't even have a clue, and it didn't stop what God's doing. And then he tells them, repent, turn to God, get your sins wiped out, have times of refreshing. But I want to emphasize it's about seeing Jesus raised as part of the message, because what we see in Acts 4 is the reaction to it from the ones that don't believe. <clears throat> the priests and the captains of the temple of the guard and the Sadducees. Okay, again, the Sadducees is the sect that does not believe in resurrection. They do not believe in angels. They do not believe there's any life after this one. Okay? They, they basically denied most of the spiritual world. They came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in any resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees are upset because you're saying Jesus, who we thought we got rid of, is raised from the dead. But the Sadducees are doubly bugged because they're, they, they're like saying, no, this can't happen because we've got the doctrine figured out. We, we, we know what the Bible's really about, and there is no resurrection. Well, that's hard to, hard to deal with that when someone's raised from the dead and people witness it. They seize Peter and John, and because it's evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Okay, So this is, this is 5,000 men, much bigger if you include everybody. Okay, I, I know there's a gender bias in that. That's the culture it was in, so deal. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm jumping all the way down to, to eight. So this is during the questioning. So it says, then Peter, because they're questioning him about the, the whole miracle that went on, and they ask him, how did you, you know, what, by what power or authority do you do this? Filled with the Holy Spirit, common phrase used here, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to an account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. Interesting. Near the end of Christ's ministry in Matthew 21, he uses this exact same quote. In fact, he actually gives a whole parable about the tenants and does this whole amazing parable just to illustrate the importance of this quote. And there would be people there that were there when Christ basically preached at them about this whole Psalm 18. And he's repeating it to some of the same people. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The name of God is really important to the Israelites. I mean, even with Moses, who, who has sent me, he asked God. What's his name? There's the whole passage that's quoted like, well, who is, what is the name of God? Can you give me a son's name? And if you look in this, there's a constant issue about the name of Jesus. 
Okay. And the disciples, they, they don't give any ground. There is not room for any, any compromise in this. The name of Jesus is used by them, even when they're explicitly told, quit using that name. <clears throat> when they saw, they being the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So it's interesting, courage is a sign of being with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked each other. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing, right there is an interesting thing. You can't deny there's a mighty miracle that happens and somehow you still get stuck in pride to say, but we gotta stop this thing. It's threatening our position. It's threatening our doctrine. It's threatening the way I see the world. It's, it's threatening us. And it's so futile to take that thought. <clears throat> but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Kind of a theme there, right? But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. Because he, he, he still kind of addressed them as fellow Israelites and saying, look, you say you believe in God. Will you be judged? Should I listen to you or to him? As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. When we're engaged with God and we're experiencing what he is doing and we are seeing and hearing what he's doing, that is what we end up testifying to. You can't fake it and just go by hearsay. When you have experience with God, in a real sense, you end up compelled by love where you can't shut up. <clears throat> so the disciples were released. Uh, again, in, uh, in other verses, they bring up following verses saying, we got to release these guys because this man who was lame for 40 years, he's over 40 years old and he's always been lame. So like, again, it's known. I mean, even when Jesus walked, Jesus passed by this guy, but it wasn't time for him to be healed. The man, when he gets healed in Acts three, it changes everything. So no denying it. So because they released him, it says on the release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now let's be clear, what they said to them were threats. Okay, so they report about all these threats. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And when you see the context of it, it's not just prayer, it's praise. Because they, they referred to sovereign Lord. They said, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So in Jeremiah, <clears throat> this, this actually is a reference in Jeremiah. After uh, Jeremiah, you know, the weeping prophet, one of the most hopeful prophets, because he's predicting the, the fall of Jerusalem. He's predicting everything happening. And as he predicts this late in Jeremiah, I think 34, he is told to buy land. And, G and Jeremiah knows this is an, a prophetic act saying, God is saying, you're being driven out, but I will restore to Israel this land. And then he sings this song, all Lord God, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So it's a song of praise about restoration. <clears throat> you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David our father. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings and the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his holy one. This is powerful praise because the very spiritual leaders or supposed spiritual leaders of the day are plotting against them. And they're rejoicing in the face of accusation and they're lifting up praise. God, you're the one who's made everything. And all these plots and threats, they're in vain. They can't stop this. <clears throat> now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So this is an interesting reaction to people that are applauding against you. I first, they're full of praise. And now they're saying, enable great boldness with your people. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Okay. By the way, I always want to say, boldly did not mean that they were out there making, making enemies on purpose. They're not speaking against people. They're just proclaiming what they've seen and heard, and they're not quiet about it. It, it, it becomes adversarial because of the reaction of other people. I remember as one person said, walking with God, you'll suffer persecution. But he says, make sure you're suffering persecution because you walk with God, not just because you were being offended. People are offended by the gospel. Just make sure it's the gospel offending them and not you. <clears throat> all right, all the believers were in one heart, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Part of the reason why I, I want to bring up this thing about Asia is this is something we see in Asia and I've met the people, is when you're in a tight community, but it's basically a religion-based community, which is what the Israelites were, when people come to the Lord in these communities in Asia, they are ostracized. They are, they are immediately put on the outs. So even when these miracles happen, people recognize the miracles, but we'll see some people come to the Lord, some are hesitant because there are consequences because the religious leaders will put them out. And it can put them out and cost them their livelihood. It can put them out from their families. It can ostracize them. So one of the common things that, that we deal with in Asia is people that have come to the Lord will lose their businesses because the family owns the business. But the family's all into a religion that they have now left. And so when they confess Jesus, they lose their work, they lose their family, they lose friends and they end up needy. And we're seeing this kind of reaction is believers sharing more in common because it's the only way they can survive. And I think that's part of what's going on in the church here. They have 5,000 people come to the Lord, but they're now on the wrong. They're on the outs from the religion leadership and from their, their old community. <clears throat> With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone that had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. <coughs> Why did they single out jo Joseph? Because this is the Barnabas that is crazy important throughout the rest of the book of Acts. This is the same Barnabas that when Saul gets converted and people are hesitant, 
he's the one that goes and encourages them. He's the one that goes to Antioch, and he's the one that travels with Saul in the ministry, preaching the gospel. But it's interesting, it starts out, he is a Levite. So him coming to Christ ends up really critical, because Levite was the tribe of priests. And in some cases, they even got money. And we don't know for sure if this was the case at that time with all of them, because he came from Cyprus. But, but the way God set it up is there was people that were in the Levitical priesthood, the Levites, didn't get to own land in Israel the way the rest of the families and tribes did. Because they were the tribe of priests, so they lived off of the stuff that was given to the priests. But once he goes to Jesus, that's not in, he's not in that system anymore. So some authors even bring up that it may have even been costing him like even his stipend when he, when he stepped out. And then he sells this property, which may have been in Cyprus, and gives it away. So I'm going to bring him up because he ends up so significant later. <clears throat> so real clear, first of all, this whole sharing things and oneness, it sounds all great and glorious. Then we find out that people are people, because then just two chapters later, we find out it's a mess. It, it gets complicated. It gets ugly. So they weren't instantly made perfect. Okay, but it still shows you a power of the spirit, how it's changing. In Acts 5, we have this interesting story. So people are selling property, putting the money at the disciples' feet. And Ananias and Sapphira say they want to do the same thing. But they decide, well, you know what? We're going to sell the property, but we want to have our own like safeguards. So we're going to hold back some of the money. So they get this idea, we'll hold back the money, but when we put it at the disciples' feet, we will say it's all of it. So when they do that, Jesus, in tune with the Spirit, knows what's going on, and basically says, Ananias, what's going on here? Because Sapphira's not there at that time. And basically says, what are you doing? You're lying to the Holy Spirit. This isn't going to fly. Now I want to be clear here. <clears throat> People voluntarily are doing this. God did not mandate they do this. He did not have to sell the land. In fact, Peter very clearly says, when the land was in your hand, you could have done with it as you will. You had a choice. It was your land. And you know, when you sold it, you could have done with the money what you will. But coming here and lying and saying this is all of it when it isn't, that's not okay. He's not saying, no, you had to sell the land. He's saying, you're lying to the spirit. This is weird because obviously they care what people think. Because why is he lying to the spirit? He wants them to think, oh, I'm in here with this. False motives. Has anybody here ever done false motives to affect the opinions of other people? And yet we don't seem to all being struck down dead. I, I say that because this is, this is a powerful thing God does. I've heard people go on rants of how this means Ananias and Sapphira weren't really saved. I don't know about that. There's nothing that says he isn't in heaven. But God's just setting a tone to saying, no, no, we're starting this from a solid foundation. I'm not, I'm not going to let you play games. And so basically, he, he dies. I mean, this, the whole thing, the effect of this is, the guy comes in, lays it at people's feet, and the next thing you know, he's dead. And then they go out to bury him, and the wife comes in, and Peter asks, hey, Sapphira, is this the deal? Is this what you sold the land for? And she fully agrees. And he goes, basically, oh, great, the guys that are coming back, they're just coming back from burying your husband, and now they're going to bury you too. And she dies. Okay, that, this is kind of a strange way to start a church. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying here? It's powerful. But basically, here's two people that try to manipulate the system, and they're dead. 
And yet, fear and awe strikes the people because of it. Okay, verse 12. Uh, The point I want to jump to here is God continues to answer their prayer in 4. Remember in 4 they said, Give us boldness to preach as you continue to do signs and wonders. Chapter 5, verse 12, 16. God continues to answer the prayer of Acts 4. Crazy amount of miracles happening. I mean, even people outside Jerusalem are bringing their sick people in and they're bringing the demon-possessed in because the disciples seem to know how to fix things. And even a weird thing where people put, put the sick out just so as Peter walks by, his shadow can touch them. And it works. So the religious leaders, because this is all public now, this isn't hidden. Like we're, you know, this isn't where Jesus, like Jesus said before, don't tell anyone. This is greatly public. So religious leaders get a really good idea. We got to get rid of the apostles. That's the answer for this. <laughs> is all these guys perform miracles, so we got to get rid of them. So he put they put them in public jail, and God moves, and this is even kind of funny, because they put all the apostles in to a jail because they, they're going to make a statement and show who's got the power. Before they're even aware of it, God arranges to get them out. So now the, the next day, they come in and they have their big meeting and they're saying, we're going to deal with this. We've got to deal with these apostles. Let's call them in. And when they go to call them and they find out, God's already let them out because they, they tell them, go get them. And basically the guards might say, they're gone. They're not there. The place is locked. I have no idea how they got out, but they're gone. And then while that's happening, another guy comes in and says, hey, those guys you were looking for, yeah, they're preaching at the temple. They're already back out and teaching already while they think they're locked up. And still they don't catch on, like, who's really running this show? So it's, it's, it's humorous but humiliating to them. So they go and get them. And it's interesting because now when they go and get them, they realize everybody at this temple sees these signs and wonders. So now instead of arresting them, they invite them to come in. It's kind of interesting because they know they can't get heavy-handed now. But they bring them in, and they're in the big show with the whole Sanhedrin here. <clears throat> and they're really panicked, like, what are we doing about this? You know, that this is just ridiculous. We've got to stop it. And Gamaliel, very wise teacher, actually the person who ended up teaching Paul, very wise teacher, says, let's be careful here, guys. And he tells the story of saying, look, this has happened before. Someone came along saying they were of God, thinking they were a big deal. He died, and it all dissipated. Then he described another one. He says, so look, at least two times, he brings up two times where someone started a movement, wasn't of God, wasn't an issue. And then he says, you've got to be careful here. Because if this isn't of God, it will die on its own without you messing with it. But if it, is, if it isn't fake, if these guys really are moving in the power of God you may find yourself working against God himself. And the interesting thing I think is, in verse 40, it says, his speech persuaded them. And I'm kind of like, did it though? Because really what they did is it says it persuaded them. Yeah, they're not going to kill him. But then they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Okay, I'm thinking if these guys are working by the power of God, do I really want to be known as the guy that flogged the servant of God? So I'm wondering really how much did they get? You know, they're, just, they're blinded by this desire to punish what they see as a threat. <clears throat> then they order them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And again, they're telling them not to speak in the name of Jesus because that's the whole issue. I mean, that's the whole bottom line here of all the stuff. When you're doing the testimony, you're engaged. 
we can't leave the name of Jesus out. Because I, I was talking to someone just the other day, and it's like everything they were writing was okay to say God. When they throw in the name of Jesus, well, now that can create an issue. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Didn't seem to change their story. So the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name's important. For the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So here's the thing I, I, I see in this, and it seems timely to me because of some conversations. <clears throat> I've had even just this last week with some people, and uh, good friends. But they get so disturbed. And that's what we end up talking about, is how to return to joy. Because they're disturbed. Some are disturbed because of what's going on in the secular world. One of them is all disturbed because of what he sees going on in the church world. And it's almost, again, that it's suffering with complaining. And... And I understand, like, God has compassion. There is a place for lament. The Bible is full of great poetry on how to lament before the Lord, how to be honest before the Lord. There's places for emotions like lament. You know what I don't see in the Bible is a great summer poetry to talk about how to complain and how, how to get worried with the brothers, how to be angry with the brothers because the church down the street doesn't do it right. I just, I, I don't see that as something God's into having that conversation. And the thing I see in this is, in the book of Acts, if they want to do, there's plenty to complain about. But that isn't what they're doing, because they are, they are in tune. They're enjoying the adventure of the Holy Spirit doing stuff. And when you're in that frame of reference, you're going, this is awesome. Because we get to rejoice because we were counted worthy to suffer for the name. So it's praise. Remember, they had praise and thanksgiving and rejoicing. Here's what I'm seeing with this whole idea, this whole part from Acts 3 to 5. And actually, it's throughout the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit does crazy actions. And then the disciples are about his actions. So rather than get wrapped up in what the world's doing or the enemy's doing and all that stuff, they, they don't, like, they're, they're involved in serious spiritual warfare. That's what rejoicing and praise is all about. It, or not all about, but that's, that's part of it. They aren't about trying to figure out and dissect exactly what's going on in the nitty-gritty. It's like, no, they're, they're consumed with what the Holy Spirit's doing. And I think that's part of the struggle I see with some of my friends not dealing well with some things is, look at what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. How do you participate with what the Holy Spirit's doing in the lives around you? Instead of being consumed with the news and Facebook on what other people are doing, or even the enemy's doing. The disciples' reaction to persecution is praise and thanksgiving. Psalm 100 came to mind when I was preparing this. And that's the whole idea of the Psalm 100 is the one that says, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will come into his courts with praise. The whole idea of thanksgiving and praise and joy, that's how we enter presence. We don't enter presence by uh, moaning. Sorry. We're on Facebook, so I had to filter that word. Um, First Thessalonians. You know, in Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica is suffering persecution too. And, and, I, and I, I love working with young people, and they're often consumed with, but what is God's will for my life? And sometimes they get annoyed because I will do this. Well, I can tell you exactly what God's will for your life is. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will for you in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I know, but i got to face lots of decisions. What do I do? 
Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanksgiving in all circumstances, for this is the will in God in Christ Jesus. Not rocket scientry, but it works. And you look at this in Acts, the testimony is so powerful because God is doing amazing things and we get to be in the adventure. Has hardship, has pain, but it has joy if you learn to embrace everything with rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all things. Because that's part of how you divide and dwell in the presence with the power. And his joy and power comes with the presence. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So that's what I get out of Acts 3, 4, and 5. Very good. good and now is when I call Jerry to come and lead in worship. But Jerry's in a business meeting. So. <laughs> oh, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. Amen? Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.